<clears throat> Today is Sunday, December 3rd, 2023, and before I get into my Taisho, I want to uh, address something that's on a lot of people's minds, I think, uh, and that's uh, Sangha member Barry Keeson, who's right now in the ICU, in the neuro ICU at Strong Memorial Hospital and has been uh, on intubation for quite some time. There are some hopeful signs, but they're also, the clock is ticking and we're just not sure how things will work out. So, <clears throat> it's really a life and death situation. Uh, I'm sure that uh, we'll be, on Tuesday we'll be uh, dedicating another chanting service to Barry. We've done two uh, so far. And uh, anybody who wants to send a card or uh, anything, uh, talk to me or to Truman, and uh, we can sort of point you in the right direction. And uh, there, Barry is able to hear, and uh, they've been uh, <clears throat> uh, communicating a lot to him including playing our chanting. Uh, hopefully that's helping. Uh, but each of us is incredibly fragile. And we forget until it's right there in front of us. The Buddha had a uh, teaching in which he said some people understand the reality of death when they hear of someone dying in a distant village. For others, it's when they die, someone dies in their own village or in their own family or when they themselves are about to die. Buddha said something else. Uh, he said, uh, for those who remember death, quarrels cease. We're all in this together. It's one, it's really one Sangha, the broadest, <clears throat> the broadest definition. But it doesn't always feel that way, and, and that's what my Taisho is about. Um, I want to talk about outrage, resentment, acceptance, and forgiveness. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read first from an article entitled, The Joy of Outrage. <laughs> what could be more fun? <laughs> I, uh, I was once a painting contractor in a previous life and uh, was doing a job uh, that was being sort of managed by the decorator and uh, I hadn't worked a lot with decorators. I don't recommend it, um, although we have a Sangha member who's a fine decorator and has helped us out quite a bit. Anyway, um, some dispute came up um, a door was painted away she didn't like or something. I can't remember what it was. Uh, and, you know, we sort of started to get into it. And 
she just grew in size. It was the most amazing thing. She just got into it. It was uh, I had to step back to see someone. She was she was ready to go. <laughs> and I I said okay okay okay. <laughs> Her outrage worked on me, um, but uh, we uh, were all familiar with outrage not working, and that seems to be where this country is at right now. So this is an article. It's not that recent. Well, it's four years, a little over four years old. From 2019, it was published in the Richmond Times Dispatch. <clears throat> it's an editorial, and uh, it goes like this: It was a time when, quote, angry words were about the only kind anyone cared to use. When people, quote, seemed tired of the reasoning process, instead of trying to convert one's opponents, it was simpler just to denounce them no matter what unmeasured denunciation might lead to. Problems, quote, were slipping beyond the hope of easy solution. Sectional enmities, economic antagonisms, varying interpretations of the American dream, the tragic, unendurable race problem itself. That's a fair description of our own time. It comes, however, from This Hallowed Ground, one of historian Bruce Catton's books on the American Civil War, first published in 1956. Some are quick to say we're heading towards another such catastrophe. That's melodramatic, melodrama being another form of organizing experience that Americans go in for these days to no one's benefit. Still and all, indignation, righteous only in the eyes of the individual indulging in it, is dividing Americans in ways that should concern us all. Ask people why they are so angry, and they will supply you with a ready list of all the terrible things the other side is doing to them. They are encouraged in this practice by the alleged experts on TV night after night. A soft answer might turn away wrath, but a hateful one is more likely to get you booked on MSNBC, CNN, or Fox. And we could add, get you more clicks, more traffic online. Anger is a public public epidemic in America, says Jean Kim, a psychiatrist who works for the Department of Health and Human Services and teaches at George Washington University. Anger is also addictive, gives us an unhappy high we keep trying to replicate. Like addicts, we chase the next angry high. Two other researchers, Jeffrey Berry and Sarah Sobiraj, who teach at Tufts, wrote a book called The Outrage Industry and said, complex issues are simplified to fit in a tweet or a headline and the messages make us feel good even while they make us mad. The simplification creates an illusion that problems are easier to solve than they are. Indeed, that all problems would be solved if only they, whoever they are, thought like us. recent study in Harvard finds that anger can color people's perceptions, form their decisions, 
and guide their behavior while they remain angry, regardless of whether the decisions at hand are related to the source of their anger. Basically, the more time we spend in our outrage, in our anger, in our despair, the less present we are, the less solid our decisions become, the more quickly we are to write people off, the more irritable we are. When when you piss a lot of people off, you run into a lot of pissed people. It's 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 a vicious circle. They say, how do we get out of this mess? There are no 12-step programs we're aware of. Well, frankly, every single 12-step problem gets at, 12-step program gets at this stuff. But uh, yeah, there's nothing directed. <laughs> Haters Anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> and there'd have to be millions of support groups to accommodate the need. For now, as psychotherapists tell their patients, to become aware of our responses to the frustrations of everyday existence is itself helpful. There's no quick fix. It's one of our our real problems, that there is no quick fix. Uh, We're impatient. We don't like to sit in those insoluble problems. We don't want to recognize that two warring sides both have right on their side. It's an impossible, tragic situation. We want to pick one side or the other and demonize our opponents. The article finishes with this sentence, One small thing we can do, though, might help. That is, to accept the fact that we're all in this together, right, left, and even center, and none of us is without blame. We see this kind of frustration, anger, outrage, um, not only between left and right in this country, but within the left and within the right. Uh, Right now we're seeing the Democrats warring with each other over support of Palestine or Israel. There's a lot of demonization that's going on there. We see the Republicans just recently went through their whole uh, ridiculous speaker war, which uh, led to Kevin McCarthy after he was ousted elbowing another congressman in the hallway in his kidney, and then that congressman chasing after him and yelling at him, all while a reporter recorded the whole interaction, which I'm sure you can listen to on Twitter. it's, it's, It's just the whole phenomenon of doubling down. You say something outrageous, you're called out on it, and you just... You go back there. You go right back there. And apparently this, this plays to packed houses. Uh, it's really going to be interesting to see how everything plays out. And uh, there are a lot of people who think they know, and they don't. I read an article recently uh, just in the, I think it was in the New York Times, 
just saying, you know, here comes fascism, there's no way around it. Um, and I see others saying, you know, the American people have a lot of common sense. Look at the last, every election since 2016. You see a lot of people are really fed up with the manufacture of hatred. But everybody, whether they feel they have a lot of hatred or not, is writing off their opponents. Think of Hillary Clinton referring to the basket of deplorables, how badly that played. And then it just gets worse from there. But what does it do when we buy into this kind of anger? Uh, number one, it doesn't change anybody's mind. In fact, it hardens opposition. Maybe it makes us feel a little better and maybe it does make them feel bad. But the real damage that we do, the damage is to the hater. And I want to read a story. <clears throat> this is something that happened uh, in the NBA, <laughs> my favorite league, favorite pro league, in uh, the National Basketball Association in 1979. Uh, it was referred to as The Punch. And this is an article that was uh, published in the Houston Chronicle. involved two players, Rudy Tomjanovich, who played for Houston, and uh, Kermit Washington, who was uh, a Los Angeles Laker, and it happened in a game. And here's how it goes. No one knew the extent of the damage, not even Rudy Tomjanovich himself, not in that horrible split second when everything changed. Everyone understood Tomjanovich was badly injured. That much was obvious but it was impossible to understand how that December 9th, 1977 moment changed his life and could have ended it. Tomjanovich had rushed toward the start of a fight, though with no intention of joining it. Lakers forward Kermit Washington turned away from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Kevin Cunnert to see Tomjanovich approaching. Washington fired out a hard right hand landing it just to the right of Tomjanovich's nose. I was the first guy to him after that punch, former Rockets teammate Mike Newland said. I watched the blood spurting after every heartbeat like a public fountain. If you go to a public fountain like in Portland and the water just geysers out, that's how it was. Tomjanovich thought his nose was broken, but that he would return to the game. He also noticed a bitter taste in his mouth. His face was broken in four places. The taste, he was told at the hospital, was spinal fluid leaking from his brain, threatening his survival. I remember it, I remember it like it was yesterday, said Calvin Murphy. Tomjanovich's longtime friend and teammate, and I spent enough time on the witness stand in the court trial. From the time he was hit and he went down, I knew there was a major problem. Not just a guy getting punched, getting up and fighting back, but when he got hit, I knew he was hurt. 
But I didn't know the extent, what we later found out about, reconstruction of his teeth and eye ducts. That was the scariest time of my career, watching that happen to Rudy. Tom Janovich was a very well-liked player. And Kermit Washington was liked as well. little more about it. We'll skip ahead here. Uh, <clears throat> Washington was suspended for a record 60 days and fined $100,000. Tom Janovich made his way all the way back, becoming an all-star for the fifth time. And then later he coached the Rockets to back-to-back championships and the United States to Olympic gold. And now he's in the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, becoming recognized and celebrated for much more than his part in the most violent episode in NBA history. Says, I did get tired of that. For years they said, he's kind of familiar, and I'd say, yeah, I'm the guy that got punched. And they'd say, oh yeah, I remember that. That was my identity. Tom Janovich would not let the incident end there. He needed to forgive Washington not for the sake of the player who threw the punch, but for himself. He had healed in every apparent way. He had reached the pinnacle of his profession, but he had to purge himself of the bitterness as clear to him as the taste of spinal fluid he will never forget. I learned something, Tom Janovich said. It's a valuable lesson. Resentment and anger is a weird thing. It's like drinking poison, hoping somebody else feels the effect. The truth is, you feel the effect. You put the negative stuff in your own mind and body. To save myself, I had to do that. I had to move on. I didn't want to be known as a victim and take on that role. Somebody once said, it's like dropping a grenade in your own body to blow someone else up. Of course, there's more in the article, but I think we'll leave it there. It's incredibly powerful uh, making the decision to forgive. And it's more powerful when we have every reason to remain angry. Justified anger is the most dangerous thing on earth. It's very hard to let go of it. It's very hard to say, What happened, happened. I'm okay with it. But when we can do that, there's amazing change that happens. You have to try it to to really believe it, I think. There's uh, some words of the Buddha. In the Dhammapada, this is really radical. He says, How will hate leave him if a man forever thinks he abused me, he hit me, He defeated me. He robbed me. Will hate ever touch him if he does not think 
He abused me. He hit me. He defeated me. He robbed me. There is only one eternal law. Hate never destroys hate. Only love does. The Buddha also said, holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of throwing it at someone else. You are the one who gets burned. I, uh, <clears throat> a while back, a year or two ago, read a book by uh, an author named Robert Sapolsky called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Very good book. Uh, I recommend it. Why don't zebras get ulcers? <clears throat> and why do humans get ulcers? Well, the answer is that zebras have stress just like we do, and the whole reason uh, that evolution has dev devised this system, uh, the stress response, is to get us out of dicey situations. If you're about to be disemboweled by a lion, you need to send all your blood to the right place, you need to tune everything way up, and you need to run for your life. And a zebra does that, and it either gets killed or it survives, and the stress response dies down and it returns to homeostasis. But for us, stress response kicks up and it can continue unabated. And so we have a situation today where, oh, you know, over a hundred years ago, the most common, the most common cause of death was death in childbirth. So just the women all by themselves were number one. Um, today, the most common causes of death are all related to the stress response. Heart disease, cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, even depression, all of those are brought on through this unending stress response that people fall into. The amygdala, the center of fear, enlarges. The hippocampus, uh, neuronal connections in the hippocampus weaken under prolonged stress, and uh, that damages long-term memory. It just doesn't pay to be a type A personality. Besides that whole cascade of physical responses, there's just what it does to our relationship to others. We're cut off from so many people. Our immediate response when we see certain people is to label them. He's woke. He's cisgender. Uh, he's a communist. He's an anarchist. You see people and, you know, in America, you can often see which tribe they belong to. They don't necessarily need to have a red hat to be able to suss it out. And immediately, it's really hard to take them in is what we have to do. It's what we do in our Zen practice. We need to take everything in. 
very hard to do. We want to wall things off. Don't feel safe unless we do. We want to wall off bad things happening. It's very hard for someone to say, I'll accept anything that happens. It's very hard to say, thank you very much. I have no complaints whatsoever. Because we're worried about what will happen. And we have this magical thinking that if I just go, no, 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 I don't like that, that that'll ward it off. We have no idea what life has in store for us, how our karma will play out. One of Bodhidharma's first teachings was uh, the teaching to suffer injustice. He says, in past lives, we've done so much that will bring us pain and bring us suffering. We have no way of knowing when that will mature, when that will come out. When it does, our job is to work with it, to accept it. Certainly, we want to take care of ourselves, but to complain and to blame It's going in the wrong direction. Things are the way they are. Right now, for us, for everyone, it's like this. There's a a passage in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous read before Uh, might be a good idea to read it every month Um, this is a part of the book where various people who've uh, gained sobriety write about their their journey and this guy says acceptance is the answer to all my problems today when I am disturbed it is because I find some person place thing or situation some fact of my life unacceptable to me and I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing, happens in God's world by mistake. If you don't like the word God, we can say in this world of cause and effect. Until Until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and in my attitudes. It's called sweeping your own side of the street. He goes on, Shakespeare said, All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. He forgot to mention that I was the chief critic. I was always able to see the flaw in every person, every situation, and I was always glad to point it out because I knew you wanted perfection just as I did. AA and acceptance have taught me that there is a bit of good in the worst of us and a bit of bad in the best of us, that we are all children of God and we each have a right to be here. When I complain about me or about you, I'm complaining about God's handiwork. I'm saying I know better than God.
if we can accept things as they are, we have a chance to have empathy for others, which diffuses so much. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said, I can find the quote. If we would read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each man's life a sorrow and a suffering enough to disarm all hostility. is to take it all in. The uh, Thai forest uh, teacher, meditation teacher, Ajahn Sumedho said, awareness is your refuge. Awareness of the changingness of feelings, of attitudes, of moods, of material change and emotional change. Stay with that because it's a refuge that is indestructible. It's not something that changes. It is awareness. It's a refuge you can trust in. This refuge is not something that you create. It's not a creation. It's not an ideal. It's very practical and very simple, but easily overlooked or not noticed. When you're mindful, you're beginning to notice it's like this. Just for starters, to know when you're angry. <clears throat> Talked about this a lot, but when anger really sweeps over you, you don't even know what's going on in your body. Heart is pounding, face is flushing. You're just focused on the injustice. It's a whole flood of emotion. Most people here have heard the teaching that those kinds of emotional reactions, if left alone, will abate in about 90 seconds. Uh, heart's pounding and then slowly we settle down and we're back to homeostasis. We're back to balance. <clears throat> but if you start stirring that pot up, you start thinking of all the reasons that you have to be angry, if you start looking for the justifications for everything you did and you just start that whole mental battle then that can go on and on and on. Awareness is our refuge. We say, I take refuge in Buddha. <clears throat> what is Buddha? Buddha is awareness. Nothing other than awareness. There are some things that happen that are going to take us a long time to work through. And uh, there's a guy uh, at the University of Wisconsin <clears throat> uh, named Robert Enright. Uh, 
who studied forgiveness for, I don't know how many years, a couple decades at least. He wrote a book called Forgiveness is a Choice. And uh, it's got a, that's a 20-step program. Um, But (laughs) thankfully for us, uh, it can be simplified. And this article, which is... uh, on the website internationalforgiveness.com goes through the uh, goes through the steps and the first phase is called uncovering one's anger the uncovering phase and it says during this phase the individual becomes aware of the emotional pain that has resulted from a deep unjust injury Characteristic feelings of anger or even hatred may be present. As these negative emotions are confronted and the injury is honestly understood, individuals may experience considerable emotional distress. It's very hard to look at something terrible that's happened to you, something that may have caused real trauma. It says deciding on the appropriate amount of energy to process this pain while still functioning effectively, is an important consideration during this phase. In other words, you can't just bring it all out immediately. It's just, it's just too much. It's just too hard. We all have the ability to take on a certain amount of damage. And as we practice, that amount gets bigger and bigger. Joko Beck refers to it as a bigger container, ABC. But all of us have a limit. There's a place where we all uh, decompensate. So you have to work carefully. It takes a long time. It's a journey. But as they say, as the anger and other negative emotions are brought out into the open, healing can begin to occur. The next step is the decision phase. The individual now realizes that to continue to focus on the injury and the injurer may cause more unnecessary suffering and begins to understand that a change must occur to go ahead in the healing process. This person may then experience a heart conversion, or in other words, a life change in a positive direction. The individual entertains the idea of forgiveness as a healing strategy and then commits forgiving the injurer who has caused him or her such pain. Of course, is what Rudy Tomjanovich did. Complete forgiveness is not yet realized, but the injured individual has decided to explore forgiveness and to take initial steps in the direction of full forgiveness. An important first step at this point is to forego any thoughts, feelings, or intentions of revenge toward the injurer. Obvious but hard to do. Nursing those feelings of revenge is the unskillful way that we try to make ourselves feel better. Third phase they call the work phase. Here the forgiving individual begins the active work of forgiving the injurer. 
This phase may include new ways of thinking about the injurer. The injured individual may strive to understand the injurer's childhood or put the injurious event in context by understanding the pressures the injurer was under at the time of the offense. Exactly what uh, Longfellow was saying. This new way of thinking is not is undertaken not to excuse the injurer of his or her responsibility for the offense, but rather to better understand him or her and see the injurer as a member of the human community. Often this new understanding may be accompanied by a willingness to experience empathy and compassion toward the offender. It's also something that happened with Rudy Tomjanovich just realizing how disastrous the whole incident had been for Kermit at Washington, whose career never really recovered the way Rudy's did. This work phase of actually willing to experience empathy and compassion also includes the heart of forgiveness which is the acceptance of the pain that resulted from the actions of the injurer. This is not to be confused with any sense of deserving the pain, but rather of bearing a pain that has been unjustly given. As the individual bears the pain, he or she chooses not to pass it on to others, including the injurer. This is often where the challenge of a quest for the good is most evident. Indeed, The individual may now become ready to begin to offer goodwill towards the injurer in the form of merciful restraint, generosity, and moral love. And this happens. Remembering that uh, shooting that happened in a church down south, I think the shooter was somebody named Dylan Roof, if I remember correctly. People in that church who survived said they forgave him. It's inspiring people of any faith can really put it into practice. He says, uh, this article says, this may or may not include reconciliation. The goodwill may be offered while at the same time taking into consideration current issues of trust and safety in the relationship between the individual and the injurer. And then the fourth of this simplified process is outcome slash deepening phase. In this phase, the forgiving individual begins to realize that he or she is gaining emotional relief from the process of forgiving his or her injurer. The forgiving individual may find meaning in the suffering that he or she has faced. Emotional relief and newfound meaning may lead to increased compassion for self and others. The individual may discover a new purpose in life and an active concern for his or her community. Thus, the forgiver discovers the paradox of forgiveness. As we give to others the gifts of mercy, generosity, and moral love, we ourselves are healed. There's a prayer, I think, in uh, Thailand. May I be given 
the appropriate obstacles in order that I may grow. We, 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 when we meet people who have suffered, really suffered, and been able to come through it, been able to accept it, been able to forgive, we feel a difference. They're grown up. Just, just their presence is helpful. <clears throat> All of us aspire to be such people. To get beyond simple self-protection. To open our eyes to the mistakes that we make. We can't determine which direction the world is going to go in. None of us, none of us has that power. But all of us can be a force for good and all of us can find the refuge of awareness and acceptance. All right. Time is up. We'll stop and recite the four vows. Mm-hmm.